Hello and welcome to the Alien Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we're looking at Minute 36, which begins with Dallas and Lambert carrying Kane onto the elevator and ends with Ripley saying, no. This week we have a new guest. We have prolific podcaster West Anthony joining us. Hi, West. How are you doing today? Fine, thanks. Uh, well, thank you for having me on the show. So, Wes, we usually like to ask our new guests about what they do, what their activity is online and in podcasting, and then also ask you about uh, the first time you saw Alien and what kind of an effect it had on you. As far as what I'm doing, uh, I'm the host of a uh, weekly music, uh, film music-related podcast called Musical Notation, and uh, you can find that uh, as part of the Battleship Retention podcast fleet at BattleshipRetention.com. I'm also on iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play uh, every week. I uh, play some some bits of music from film. Uh, it's not ne- always necessarily music that is uh, written especially for a film. Any music that's ever been in a film, from Broadway musicals or songs or what have you, anything is fair game. As far as well, the first time I saw Alien, uh, that was that would have been on television. Uh, at the time that the film came out, I was not necessarily allowed to see R-rated movies, which is not to say that I never saw them back then, but that particular one I did not uh, until it was on uh, broadcast television. Uh, and that would have been maybe a year, a half, two years later, because that was it was a much longer window back then uh, between when a film was theatrically released and when it was eventually shown on television. And, and it would have been network television. There wasn't much in the way of cable back then, and there was not a burgeoning uh, home video market either. So... It would have been a pan and scan version on on network television and all the swearing would have been dubbed over and all the really violent stuff would have been removed. Did it kind of scare you when you saw it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty terrifying film. I I, I had an idea that it was going to be terrifying because and I because thing is, and I think this is why you you had me on the show. um, I heard the the music for Alien before I ever saw the movie, you know, um, because I was already interested in film music uh, at that time, and I knew that Jerry Goldsmith's music would be interesting because I had heard his score for The Omen, because that I had also seen on TV like the year before this movie was released. And uh, that was a, that's an incredible score. If you haven't seen The Omen, if you're not familiar with the music, you should check that out because it's, it's, it's really great. So I had heard the soundtrack album for Alien before I had ever seen the movie. And the... The album is just so incredible and vividly weird sounding. It really fired my imagination in terms of what might actually be going on in the movie. So, right. so when I finally did see it, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty mind blowing. But at the same time, there was a whole other element that uh, we'll probably get into across uh, you know uh, my my appearances on your show. And the thing is, the first thing, the very first thing I thought when I saw the movie was, what the hell is this? Because the very first music you hear in the film is not the music that was presented as the opening music on the soundtrack album. We know there's a few changes that we'll be getting into as the week progresses, but that was the one where I wasn't sure if it was on the soundtrack or not. I couldn't remember. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that the, the music that you hear at the beginning of the film, that, that was not the music that he originally wrote. Uh, there's, there's a theme for the movie, and... I don't know. It was all but a, almost completely obliterated by Ridley Scott and his editor Terry Rawlings. I don't, I don't know why they didn't want that music at the beginning of the film or at the end of the film, but the original music that Goldsmith composed, uh, as well as a lot of other music in between, it got kind of removed or heavily edited or replaced. 
it's 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 a weird situation. Wes, can I, I wanted to ask you about the fact that when all that happened and, and Goldsmith was clearly not pleased with these changes, then he went and worked with Ridley Scott again, right? On and 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 that music was replaced on Legend, right? Oh yeah, that was. I mean, that was even worse, really. I mean, at least at least some. You know, Jerry Goldsmith's music is in Alien. So, I mean, not all of it is there. Uh, not all of it is where he wanted it. And uh, some of it is not even music that he wrote for the film. Uh, but, yeah, you'd think that after everything that happened to his music on this film, he wouldn't work with Ridley Scott again, but he did. And, yeah, the results were arguably worse because he wrote a score for Legend. And that was Ridley Scott's big giant fantasy film with Tom Cruise from uh, 1985. And if you saw that film in Europe when it opened in late 85, his music is in the film. But here, back in the States, uh, Legend had a bad test screening, see, and the suits at Universal. And these are the same exact people who thought that Terry Gilliam's Brazil would be just peachy with a happy ending. Okay, it's these guys. <laughs> they thought that the youth market wanted music that was more appealing to them than some dusty old Jerry Goldsmith score. And so when the film opened here in the spring of 86, his music was completely replaced with Tangerine Dream. Because, wow, if there's anything the kids of the mid-80s wanted more than Tangerine Dream, I can't think of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, remember when Tangerine Dream wanted to play on We Are the World and Quincy Jones had to kick him out because nobody paid attention to like, Bruce Springsteen or Cindy Lauper or Tina Turner or Bob Dylan with Tangerine Dream on the scene? Oh, please don't diminish us with your superstardom, Tangerine Dream. Your light shines too brightly for us. Yeah, I think you don't remember that because it never happened. Right. Not exactly the feel-good band, you know, when you think of Tangerine Dream, that's not what you think of, that it's going to somehow pep the movie up, you know? Yeah, it's just total nonsense. The people at Universal, they were just idiots, just making one bad decision after another. So, that, and yeah, after that, yes, Goldsmith never worked with Ridley Scott again. And, and I, I honestly can't say as I blame him. You know, Legend, Legend is not a movie that's on my radar at all. I think I saw it when I was a kid and hated it then. Um, is, that, is that version available? I mean, I don't guess yeah, it is. Yeah, both versions are available. Are they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it became a big cult thing, and so uh, Universal released uh, a sort of package with both cuts of the film uh, on DVD, and I think now it's available on Blu-ray. I, yeah, I saw the movie in theaters back when it was originally released, and I didn't think it was that big a deal. Um, and then I just, in preparation for this episode, I saw the director's cut with the restored Jerry Goldsmith score for the first time. And uh, I, I remain unmoved, in my opinion, on Legend. It's, well, that was going to be my question, whether it was a vast improvement with the Goldsmith score or not, but I guess not. I like his music, but yeah. it just ultimately didn't really help the picture. I think a lot of this it, it has, I'm not sure that it speaks very well about Ridley Scott in terms of his attitudes toward music because uh, it, it, it could be a situation where he just doesn't have as much respect for the for music as he should or and I, this may be more likely because by that time remember he had just come off of Blade Runner which I know he poured everything he had into that film and he he really thought that it was going to be big and I think a lot of people did and then it wasn't it basically just tanked at the box office. I mean, today we all look at it and we can acknowledge that it is possibly his masterpiece. Definitely in terms of uh, visually, in terms of his grasp of, uh, of mise-en-scene in, in the realm of science fiction, uh, Blade Runner is all but unparalleled. It, it is a brilliant film to look at. Uh, but then it just tanked. And once that happens, then when you're given another 
big budget movie like he did with Legend, and then uh, suddenly there's a test screening and it doesn't go so hot, maybe you're going to be a lot more susceptible to suggestions from people who maybe don't know any better. Well, getting back to Alien, then when we're the the very first music that we're hearing under the titles, if it's music, it's tonalities, that's not Goldsmith, right? Oh, yes, it is. That is. So it's only when yeah. we get to the Freud stuff, the the opening of the uh, of the sleep chamber. That's that's from another score, right? Yes, but that's also from a Jerry Goldsmith score. Right. That's right. They wrote, yeah, for a John Huston film in 1962. Uh, called Freud, and then there's a subtitle, but it's not, you can look it up as Freud. It stars uh, Montgomery Clift as uh, Sigmund Freud. Yeah, when when that minute came up uh, a few weeks ago, West, uh, we sort of teased that you were coming on the show. We saved any discussion of the cryo uh, cryopod openings and the score beneath it uh, for when you came on. But I, for one, love that moment, um, even knowing that it's not jerry goldsmith's wishes to have that particular music uh scoring that scene it still really works for me i'm not sure how you feel about it i'm curious i I like it but i mean i kind of like it better where it was intended to be which is where you will also hear it it's the scene when after the the crew has uh has left their ship they've landed on lv426 as i believe it is now known um and they're making their way into the, uh, the, the big alien spacecraft. You hear that same music uh, in that sequence. That was, that was where, what it was originally written for. That's where it originally appeared. And it's just uh, Ridley Scott was just very enamored of that music and decided that he wanted more of it, and he wanted it at the beginning to, to set the mood. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's okay uh, at the beginning of the film, but my thing is that, uh, the theme that Goldsmith wrote for the uh, you know, for the original thing um, for the for the title sequence, uh, I liked it better. Uh, there's because the thing is there is a theme that he wrote for this film, and it was mostly kind of scrapped. You can still hear it uh, in little bits uh, at when the uh, when the ship is going to be is preparing to land. Uh, on the planet and when it's taking off from the planet and then towards the very end of the film, you can hear a bit of it. But uh, overall, you know, it was just, it was very clearly stated this theme at the beginning of the film. And I, I guess, I don't know. I don't know if Ridley Scott maybe didn't want it or something. I'm not sure what that, uh, what that was about, but uh, yeah, because it was, it was left out at the beginning, it was left out at the end, where at the end, is, uh, completely, the music is completely replaced with music that he didn't write at all. It's somebody else's music. Um, and then the theme is reiterated in the first scene of the film, where everybody is waking up, uh, and he had, uh, Scott had that scene, uh, the music rewritten. So that music, uh, the, the theme sort of ended up not being in there. Um, I want to try something here, and I'm not sure it's going to work, but I want to give it a shot. Hold on just a moment. Can you hear that? Yeah.
that is the opening title music as Jerry Goldsmith originally wrote it. And then it was replaced in the end with this. sets a mood and I think we all like the mood that it sets otherwise we wouldn't be watching the movie and we certainly right. wouldn't be talking about it but uh, I just I don't know now now you've heard the, the the opening theme you've heard the melody that he created for this film and again you don't really don't hear very much of it in the film um, and I, what, what do you think about it well I think the theme the theme is is really beautiful uh, and I think that sometimes that more tonally prickly sinister version that comes under the titles i think some i think it's very effective in keeping the movie scarier you know i i find great comfort in the in the alien theme that goldsmith wrote i think it's really a beautiful piece of music um so i go both ways but i have a question for you i've always wondered uh and we'll eventually get back to this minute but this is, i'm so glad you're you're here on the show what what did he what is used to make that weird percussive echo sound? It sounds like like a piano strings being hit or something. Gosh, there's so many different weird effects that he's done in this film. That, that, uh, there's uh, I know there's an instance where they were plucking piano strings with a guitar pick, um, and also there have been instances where I think uh, they're just kind of slapping the, uh, the 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 strings with the with their bows. Um, and then also you have the echoing effect, yeah. which is accomplished with a, a device known as the Echoplex. That's the name of it. It's a, it's a tape delay effect that was originally invented for guitarists. Uh, a lot of guitar players have used it over the years. Jimmy Page has used it, Eddie Van Halen, Neil Young, uh, Brian May from Queen. And I think a couple of jazz music, musicians have used it as well. Uh, let me see. I think, um, yeah, Miles Davis has used it and Don Ellis, who... Uh, you might remember he wrote the uh, the score for the French Connection in 1971. It's a very weird, dissonant jazz score. Mm -hmm. um, and Goldsmith has used the Echoplex before. Most memorably, he used it on Patton. If you recall the music for Patton, it has that echoing thing with the uh, with the, the trumpet fanfare. Sure. And he right. used it a year before this movie in Coma. And it is the reason why he did not conduct this score. He conducted. Uh, most of his scores around this period. I mean, Star Trek, he, he conducted it, and uh, Capricorn One, and, and movies like that around that era. Uh, he conducted it himself. He did not conduct this score. It was left to Alfred Newman. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Lionel Newman, Alfred Newman's brother, um, because Goldsmith had to sort of sit behind the, the mixing board and supervise the use of the Echoplex, along with all the other weird instrumentation that was going on with this, uh, with this film. Because there's, there's some weird instruments like uh, an Indian conch, which is sort of, you know, a big giant seashell that uh, you blow in and it makes sort of a, a weird noise. Um, and there's another instrument called the serpent, which is another uh, uh, instrument that you sort of blow into. And it looks really weird. You can look it up on, on Wikipedia. And the reason that it's called a serpent is because it's just a very long sort of snaky uh, instrument that's sort of related to the, uh, the family of uh, the, the tuba. So he and, was in the room. He just wasn't doing the conducting. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was. He just had to keep an eye on the echoplex. Because the thing with the echoplex is that it, it's going to create an echo uh, live. You know, it's not something that's added in post production, and you can sort of keep an eye on uh, the you know how much the or how fast or how slow the echo has, is going, so that you can keep it in the tempo with the music, and you can also fiddle around with the uh, with the pitch. So that's and so that's that's something that he had to keep an eye on. So he couldn't be conducting the score and keeping an eye on the echoplex at the same time. All right, and you said Lionel Newman was the one that conducted, and the brother of Alfred Newman. Right. And this is this is a point where I wanted to make a little a correction or uh, point out an omission we made in the very first episode. Uh, we of course we were talking about the credits in the first minute of the movie, and we talked about somewhat extensively the 20th century fanfare without ever giving writing credit to Alfred Newman for writing the fanfare, something that didn't occur to me until I was listening to your podcast the other day, West, about about the Newman family. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to uh, to correct ourselves on leaving out that writing credit that we should probably brought up. I guess we should get into the minute now, <laughs> since we're this far in and we haven't talked about the movie yet. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, in the last minute, we ended with uh, the away team, uh, Kane, uh, Lambert, and... And uh, well, Kane unconscious, Lambert and Dallas dragging him onto an elevator to head into the ship. And we start this minute with with Dallas calling for Ripley. So um, I think that we're seeing the first instance. I think we're really solidifying Ripley's authority on the ship. Up to now, we weren't, uh, you know, in previous minutes, we weren't 100 percent sure what her job was on the ship. We start to get little inklings of an idea as we go along, and now we're starting to actually see that she's in charge of the ship when Dallas and Kane are away. Second in command, I guess. Yeah, I think technically third, but since Dallas and Kane are both off the ship, that leaves her as the captain of the ship for the moment. Kane was command? Yeah, Kane is the uh, executive officer of the oh, ship, okay. so he's actually, yeah, he's actually Dallas' second. And yeah, there's which, a lot of that in the hierarchy of the, this crew that I'm... I'm, I'm not entirely clear on. I, I only know for certain that Brett and Parker are pretty much uh, at, at the bottom. Yes. And, and, they don't, and they don't much like it. They grumble a little bit about it from time to time, for sure. But yeah, uh, that was something we've been discussing as we go along, Wes, is how that could have been... You know, I knew a lot about this movie the first time I saw it, and Mitch saw it in the theater the day it opened. So we, we often have this discussion about what we knew and didn't know when we first watched the movie. And one of the things I think that they're withholding from us uh, primarily as misdirection for the fact that Ripley's going to eventually be the protagonist of the movie, is they, they sort of they place her in, in a lower state uh, rank-wise early on in the movie, but she starts to rise slowly. We start to realize how much more authority she has, and here we, uh, we're starting to really see it, especially in the next two minutes. Right, Mitch? Absolutely, yeah. The other thing that we see pretty soon into this minute are... I guess they call the semiotic standard. Is that what they're called? Yeah, I was going to bring this up. West, are you aware of this design element of the Nostromo, the semiotic standard? Uh, no, I'm not. Fill me it's in. It's interesting. If you if you have any ability to to look it up uh, right now, even it would be interesting. I should have probably sent it to you before we recorded. It's a Ron Cobb, one of the concept uh, design artists. Uh, considered himself a frustrated engineer and was very detail-oriented as far as the ship was concerned, uh, especially on the interiors, designing elements that would never really probably be noticed by a viewer watching the movie. And so he created this thing called the semiotic standard, which is a, a list of signs that you see throughout the ship. They're, they look to be about six by six inches um, in size, and you'll see them if you pay very close attention. 
Okay, uh, yeah, let's see what you're talking about. Yeah, so when, for instance, when they get into the airlock here first, now pretty much every door on the Nostromo has that Purina checkerboard in the middle of it. Yeah, uh, that's what this, it looked like to me too. Yeah, and that is for that's just hazard warning. Hazard. So I see. Okay. So everywhere is a hazard. The entire Nostromo is a hazard, and so they're everywhere. Yeah, well, it's a big floating uh, what oil refinery in space, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty much going to be hazardous everywhere you go. That, that makes sense. But then if you look, I don't know if you can see it, uh, on the upper left-hand corner inside the airlock is another sign, which looks like a person hanging upside down. If you look at it right, it's a person hanging upside down, which stands for artificial gravity absent. So it's just these little things that are supposed to tell the, as a crew member, it's telling you, you know, giving you the warning signs, telling you where you are. There's even ones for, uh, that we should have probably mentioned minutes ago, but there's one for the galley. And there's even one for coffee, which is just looks like it actually looks like a little thumb drive. But so anyway, this is a little game, I think, that we could play with the with the listeners from now on as we move forward in the movie is to keep an eye out for these semiotic standards. And, you know, if you want to go to Facebook and point out any time that we've missed one, please do so. Or if you have any other information about them. But and you can see them off to the left when. Ash moves towards the door. He sort of moves into the shot to take his place because he wants to open that door. And you can see them yeah. off to the left. Um, but it's not going to be so easy to to uh, open this door, right? John, we've got this first real direct conflict between everybody and Ripley because she is definitely right. on her own. And this is something I wanted to ask West about, uh, seeing as he wasn't here for previous minutes where we've talked about Ash. But um, he's really quick to get the door. He seems very anxious to open the door. Now, Wes, I've read this kind of behavior in earlier minutes as, um, well, I've, I've wondered how to read it. Because if you're watching it the first time, not knowing he's an android, you see it as quirky human behavior. But knowing he's an android, it's kind of hard to read what this behavior is. What, what, how do you read his behavior as far as how, how anxious he is to get to the store and get it open? Well, uh, now, there was a, a warning uh, signal that was being sent out, right? And I think that's something that you might have uh, discussed earlier because that was something that I know happened earlier in the film. Or maybe it was in the director's cut. No, that- uh, uh, Ripley puts the message to the computer and the computer gives her a readout that she seems to think is a warning and she tells Ash about it, yes. Okay. So, and as we eventually find out, there is a, a hidden directive regarding uh, finding uh, alien life forms. So in that, given though that information, I would imagine that Ash is pretty eager to get some kind of alien life form on board the ship, would he not? Yeah, and that's what, you know, I'm kind of playing, my idea is that I, I want to sort of give him a, as an android, a little psychological profile. I want to know, you know, is it because the mission programming uh, he, he's so focused on the mission programming that his he's sort of overly anxious and kind of greedy with the anticipation here to accomplish the mission. Uh, or, you know, you're supposed to read it, I think, as he's a caring person that wants to help this crew member who seems to be injured. But I just like to get both readings on Ash. So I was I was curious what your reading on that was. You know, the trouble with Ash is that he never seems like a caring individual. So that's, that's, true. that's always kind of problematic. I mean, the, the, the closest you ever come to seeing him really looking out for anybody 
is in the scene where they're discussing going down to the planet. And, of course, you know, Parker and Brett don't want to do it. And then he sort of reminds them that, you know, if they don't do it, then they forfeit their shares and they, they don't get paid. And that could be interpreted as sort of like, oh, well, you know, look, you guys, you're, you're bitching about your money. Well, then, you know, if, if we don't go down to this planet, you're not going to get any. So that, that could be interpreted vaguely as sort of a, a caring moment. But the thing is, is that as the, the, the film progresses, I mean, through everything, even leading up to you know the uh, the, the the seminal scene with where John Hurt basically gets it, uh, every time Ridley Scott cuts to a reaction shot of Ian Holm, there is no reaction. He's just he's watching very coolly and dispassionately at all times and everywhere, and especially given what we know about the character, it just ends up looking increasingly more and more suspicious when everybody else is just having very transparently emotional reactions to everything that's going on, and he's just sitting very still. And there, there's almost no expression on his face. And it just starts to get more and more suspicious. And then eventually, you know, we, we find out what's going on, and that explains everything. Because the crew is so such a disparate bunch, and there are so many personalities, and there's so many personality clashes, it's pretty effective as a trick, because... You're absolutely right in everything you've said about how he behaves. And at the same time, I can remember watching the movie the first time and, and just being struck by such a, it's such a prickly bunch of people to be thrown together that he's just, he's just one more guy that could be a problem, you know, or not. But he's not, he's, I, I agree. There's, now, with hindsight, every close-up of him looks like he's, he's a robot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even in the pivotal scene, you know, with John Hurt, I mean, they, Scott cuts to a reaction shot. Uh, and I mean, everybody else is just obviously they're, they're very jumpy and panicky because, you know, the guy is he appears to be having a seizure and and everybody is, is very upset about it. And he's the only one who's just not reacting at all. Scott very pointedly cuts to a shot of Ash and he's not doing anything. And so that's that's really I mean, like the really first big signpost that he may not be what he seems. All right. Well, does anybody have any more notes for this minute? Oh, uh, I wanted to point out that I, I always think in retrospect now I watch it. I think it's kind of funny that uh, Lambert, played by Veronica Cartwright, I think it's funny when that she desperately wants that hatch opened because, you know, uh, four years later, uh, Veronica Cartwright will play a character who, who basically accuses her husband of opening a hatch when he wasn't supposed to <laughs> in right stuff, um, which is my favorite movie of all time. And that scene is a confrontational scene between Veronica Cartwright and Fred Ward as uh, astronaut Gus Grissom. That is my favorite scene in the movie. It's so uh, uh, emotionally devastating and, and brilliantly acted by the both of them. Uh, Veronica Cartwright is, is wonderful uh, all the time. She's great in this movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just I always re remember that. It's like, oh, I, oh, she really wants that hatch opened. And, and then, you know, four years later, somebody else opened the hatch, and now she's, she's all against it. I never thought about that. That's brilliant. And I, and I agree with you that that scene with the two of them, which I think plays out in a single take with no cuts is, is just a fantastic scene between Fred Warden and uh, Veronica Cartwright. I, yeah. I remember just, that scene from seeing it when I was a kid on TV and feeling so it was, it was a very emotional scene, even though I couldn't possibly relate to them as adults, but I, it's a heartbreaking scene. I just remember being, 
I don't know, feeling a little embarrassed or something for him. I don't remember the emotion I had, but yeah, that is a very effective scene for sure. Yeah, it's, it's just a thing of beauty. And again, we were talking about an, a film that's over three hours long. It's a big, giant, wonderful American epic about the beginning of the space program. And that, that one very intimate scene between two, two characters in a motel room, uh, that I think is just the best scene in the picture. And I've seen that picture a lot. Like I said, it's my favorite film of all time. All right. Well, I guess that'll do it for minute number 36. Uh, tune in tomorrow for minute number 37. In the meantime, uh, you can find us at alienminute.com or follow us at alienminutepod on Twitter. Wes, where can uh, people find you on the Internet? Oh, well, like I said, you can check out my podcast, Musical Notation. Uh, you can find episodes on BattleshipPretension.com. Uh, you can also find it on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at NotationPod. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. West Anthony. I'm not a real doctor. All right. Well, that'll do it. We'll tune in tomorrow for minute number 37.